Company Watch Financial Analytics. Hello and welcome to the Company Watch Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Financial and Commercial Risk Analyst. Welcome, Nick. Good morning. So we are recording today's episode in the morning of Friday, the 15th of January. Um, as probably most of you will have heard, the GDP figures for November were released this morning. So that we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, we've also got, again, this is kind of breaking news as we're recording, that the Supreme Court has found in favour of policyholders um, for those who were claiming the business interruption insurance. So there's some interesting um, things to, to just touch on there. We've also got a few a kind of roundup of other things. So like last week we were we were talking quite a lot about Brexit disruption and, and obviously the lockdown. We've we've kind of got a smaller board, if you like, um today of different um of different things to 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 touch on. So rather than do a list at the beginning, I I think we maybe just dive in and um and you can have a surprise as we go through. So Nick, GDP. GDP, right. Um headline numbers uh, uh down 2.6% in November, uh, which means that uh, since pre-pandemic February, mm-hmm. uh, the economy is still down 8.5%. Um, as you would expect, service sector uh, worst hit down 3.4%, manufacturing down 0.7%, construction up 1.9%, yeah. and construction is now back to where it was before the pandemic, just just, just, yeah. just. Services, however, are still 10% down on pre-pandemic. And I, and I think we know that December won't be pretty and January and February also won't be pretty. Um, so we're kind of heading very much into that that double dip. The, the thing that was interesting um, to me was that before the, you know, normally a, a day before, so yesterday the newspapers were starting to write about what the economists were kind of predicting and there were talk, you know some of the in the very pessimistic end were talking about you know potential 5.6 um downturn which clearly 2.6% is not great but it's a lot better than um than that um but then you look there was some there was some research on on um the retail sector which we might come back to but one of the things there is a barclay cards information on consumer spending and in december that was a 2.3% fall year on year and that already gives you a kind of clue as to what December is going to look like from a from a GDP perspective, doesn't it, Nick? Yes, and and, and I have to say I was as irritated as I know you were, Joe, this morning. Um, turned on my radio and and and, and got this uh, economist from J.P. Morgan, um, who appears to have found Andy Haldane's supply of happy pills, because she was determined that we were going to have a really strong second half of 2021, and that the economy would be back. To pre-pandemic by the end of the year, um, which is absolutely fine. But it, it comes back to this point that you know you keep making, Joe, that if only we could find some balance yeah. in all of this. And I'm tempted to share that the, the um, a slight different version of that old joke about you know if you if you laid all the economists in the world end to end, I suspect now the only thing you would you would get would be a lot of political conclusions. Mm. And it's really hard, isn't it? I think we, when we when we do our prep for this podcast, we're we're looking to try and get a, a rounded view and to try and um, and try and get some balance. But it's very difficult to have, you know. On the one hand, you know, you've got the the kind of papers talking about five point seven percent fall, which is you know very different from actually what's transpired. And right. on the other hand, you've got the the kind of boosterism. You know, if we think positive, everything will be okay. And really, I think what 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 I would like to know, and I think what most of our listeners would want to know is 
you know, what, what is the kind of the reality? What what can we reasonably expect? Um, and what do these these figures really um, tell us? So maybe that's a, a campaign to. Yes, I think, it, I, I think it is. Um, one thing I wanted to pick out um, from within the mass of sectorial information in the GDP numbers is construction, because yes. it's the sector that's back where it started in February. Um, uh, but nonetheless, but it's not quite straightforward as that, is it? I think you. Were, I, I, I was. I was asking you whether this is house building, and it's a bit more nuanced. And than... well, well, it is because if you look at the if you look at the the chart of GDP movements over the the last little while for construction, you have got the classic V-shaped recovery. You know, if only the whole economy was doing that. But anyway, okay. construction yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. But if you look at the ONS numbers and you break it down between different bits of the construction sector, it's really, really, really um, not that simple. And for example, yes, private housing House building is rising. Infrastructure is rising particularly strongly, mm-hmm. but commercial construction—I mean, unsurprisingly—has fallen quite considerably in the last couple of months. So plateaued, and then is drifting downwards. And um, maintenance uh, spending on uh, refurbishment and maintenance spending on on private housing is dropping like a stone. Mm. I've so, heard some anecdotal evidence actually that would. So, so would I think, I think what I take out of that is that you know, for our listeners who are have risk in that area, um, I'm sure you know it. But nonetheless, you know, it isn't a case of construction good. It's a it's a question of some bits of construction good, some yeah. bits of construction not so good. I mean, in so, a similar way, actually, I suppose to the retail. Again, that was something that was picked up quite widely on the news about the retail um, figures, and you know, the headline was it was 0.3 percent down for 2020 compared to 2019, worst set of figures since I think 1995, since the British Retail Consulting started this. But as you pointed uh, out, break it, very, break it down, break it down, break, break, it, down. It, break it down, and you've got things like um, you know. Um, uh, home-related subsectors like computing and TV and ga- TV and gaming and electrical appliances doing really well. Poor on clothing and footwear, unsurprisingly. Um, very weak on health and beauty. And interestingly, if you look at the sectorial, um, if you look at the, uh, the another interesting thing that goes alongside all of this, the Resolution Foundation have published some sector breakdowns of changes in household spending, household right. consumption mm-hmm. for Q3 2020, so up to September. Yeah. And the one that, that, that you commented on, Joe, when we were talking before we started recording, was that spending on health, which includes health uh, and beauty, um, is down 21% on a year ago. Beauty, um, I can understand, because, you know, speaking as a woman who is like would wear makeup every day going to work, there's not very few days when I when I wear makeup now, and so I can see that that. But the health side, you know, I'd I'd heard that there there'd been a lot, of, and we were looking at some analysis the other day. We do a kind of internal company analysis session, and we'd looked at the pharmaceutical um, companies that are in the kind of vaccine and supplements, and they've done very well during the the pandemic. So it'd be interesting to understand a bit more about that. That well, well, I, I think that's right. But my suspicion, be, being a little bit sort of, uh, am I being misogynist? I don't know. Um, is that maybe. Um, it tells you quite a lot about uh, how much of the spend in the health and beauty sector is is discretionary and impulse based and is and is premium based in pricing mm. terms, and maybe in these tough times, people it, it's a little bit of reining in of conspicuous consumption. 
Mm. And also, I, I mean, again, I mean, this is going, I'm going on a very small tangent, but the makeup that I would buy, I have to go to St Pancras and I, I go to a shop. And then when I've tried to find them online, it's very difficult actually to find the supplier of the things that I want on yep. my my beauty salon or whatever. So yeah, it's um, that's that's kind of interesting, interesting. Yeah, um, something something else that caught my eye was um, the Telegraph uh, early in the week published, and I think it comes from the ONS um, bi-monthly survey of what's going on uh, you know in different sectors and they published a very interesting chart of the number of businesses in each sector that have less than three months cash reserves and across the economy as a whole 30 percent of all businesses based on their survey have only have between zero and three months cash reserves construction interestingly 40% 40% of them Again, are in it this. Back to, doesn't it come back to the, you know, dig below the, the headlines for construction? I, 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 I know. And of course, the, the, yeah. you know, I, I spent six years working for Bovis, so I sort of get all this. And of course, that's not construction as a whole. Those will be the subcontractors, the, mm. the little subbies who live hand to mouth, you know. Um, understandably, the worst sector for cash starvation is accommodation and food. Yeah, hospitality of course mm. 51% of all companies have less than 3 months cash reserves um arts and entertainment 30% um so you know it gives you a, a real picture again of where risk is yeah and the, and that actually leads quite nicely into the news that we're just hearing this morning on the the um supreme court ruling on the business interruption insurance now you know there's still more detail that needs to come out of that but they're kind of looking at the headlines um, the BBC is, is quoting that there might be up to 370,000 small businesses who will benefit from a payout of some some kind. I'm not quite sure who've got any ideas of average payouts, what that might be. But, you know, you'd hope that that, that could actually be a lifeline is that if there is money to be paid out um, and it can be paid out quickly, then some of these businesses that presumably are the ones that are most likely, the ones with, that have been worst affected by the pandemic, clearly are going to be the ones that are going to be claiming on business um, interruption policies. So maybe but, there's a... But Joe, let me give you another bit of context. We said last week that based on the government figures, something like half of all the companies in the country have taken, taken loans, the loans. Uh, either C-bills or... Mm-hmm bounce back loans so if half of the companies in the country have taken uh, have, have boosted their cash by taking loans how on earth have they still got less than three months cash reserves how i suppose again it's, this is where you get frustrated because it's not the the, the government figures for the um Seabills bounce backs they split i think in in um sector and constituency actually but it's very difficult to kind of map you know if you're dealing with different data sets and trying to map and draw conclusions and I suppose again that would be something we would be kind of keen to to just point people's attention to to say look there's there's more going on here and and perhaps um perhaps look out and a bit of certainly talk again we've, we've said this time and again if you're in credit if you've got risk talk to um the 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 customers that you've got exposure to because you know they will be able to tell you if they've taken the loans and um you may be able to get some other information as well from um from that i suppose on the point of information i'm kind of making a slightly slight leap here but i, I was quite impre- um interested in your again it's a telegraph article on the audit yes it's very, um, it's, very um, it's very interesting joe uh, you know as an ex-auditor although goodness knows that was a very very long time <laughs> ago um and and as a huge skeptic about 
what on earth the point of audit is. Nonetheless, it does have an effect um, in one very odd way that I haven't thought through. It seems that the major accounting firms are lobbying for a further extension of the public company disclosure deadlines and and, uh, accounts uh, filing deadlines at companies' house because they have too many of their staff isolating or working from home. They're saying they simply cannot do the audits in time. And presumably you need some kind of physical presence in in audit. I mean, how how easy is it to do a remote audit I thought it's quite well, well good good, good luck I mean I don't think there's any I don't think there's any value in auditing at all so I don't suppose it really matters whether you whether you bother to, to rock up at the premises or not but I, I, I jest but I think yeah I mean is, I think it is it's hard I think it's you're if you're there really trying to to kind of look through the um the detail I think you do need to be be face to face with somebody don't you in you, uh, to you, a you degree need, you need you need to be able to interpret when you're discussing with senior management, when you're an auditor, you need to be able to see more, more than the top half of their bodies. And you need to be able to see their facial movements more clearly than you can on Zoom or Teams. Mm. But hey, but anyway, I mean, the, the outcome of that, of course, will be that um, if there is a further delay in producing public information, and, and when I first mentioned this to you, Joe, you quite rightly said, well, you know, if it's going to delay further the filing of 2019 accounts, not sure that's as critical as delays to filing 2020 results, because sort of 2019 is beginning to seem like a, you know, a, a, a different era, yeah. indeed a different commercial planet. Um, 2020, of course, is is what's going on now yeah. in the pan, in the pandemic. So it, it will be a tragedy. It will presumably affect credit decisions and it will affect uh, credit insurance decisions. Absolutely. If the, you know, the less information, I mean, the whole credit sector is surely flying blind if, if, if it can't yeah. have current information, timely. And I think, you know, we're talking about the um, this being an impact for public companies, but presumably that will filter down to, you know, if, if large private companies require audits as well. So I think that that will be, yeah. that will be a, a knock-on um, effect. And, you know, I think we were disappointed with the blanket extension to the filing deadlines. You know, I thought there was, there was certainly a case to be made for companies applying for an extension. Sure. But really, the, the message should be: if you can, you know, it's so important if you want to get access to um, to credit that you file your accounts mm-hmm. in a timely way. To give a blanket extension, and people do tend, you know, it's human nature, isn't it? We all tend to take up to the deadline to file um, information well, or to well, do anything. Um, well, yes, and of course, what it what it does, it makes it very difficult for the credit industry, and and, and for that matter, the you know the procurement, procurement. side of mm. side of business in 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 taking uh, you know purchasing decisions makes it really difficult because it forces uh forces you i mean you know part of our mantra regularly on uh you know company watch generally and certainly us over the last year or so is you know you've got to keep on top of your risk you've got to keep talking to your to your key risks and getting current information out of them i mean eventually we will be in a situation where uh, you know the industry will be relying entirely on informal management information, mm. and uh, you know I I know that at the root of a lot of accounting and financial scandals is the gulf between management figures and what eventually comes out when you have to expose them to external scrutiny. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's something to keep a watch on anyway, isn't it, to see how this um, this progresses. It hasn't been picked up more widely, actually. I haven't really, I've only seen that one report that you mentioned in the Telegraph. So yeah. um, I guess, and, and it, it, that made me make the link between, so um, I'm sure lots of people remember the consultation that Companies House launched in 2019 um, on trying to tighten up the register. And, you know, quite a lot of the motivation for that consultation was born out of the money laundering scandals and so on, and how easy it is to set up a, a company that's not very much one well, no validation of, of information that's filed um there are, as a result of that um bays who's the kind of owning um departments of, of companies house has launched three more consultations so i'd really recommend um that you go and look at those and and they cover um the issue of corporate directorships the powers of the registrar so being actually able for the for the um Registrar of companies have to be able to reject information that she has concerns about um, under various criteria. And also the quality and value of financial information. And interestingly, in that consultation, um, a question is asked about should the filing deadline be shortened by three months? So it would be six months for private companies and three months for um, for public companies. And, you know, it seems a funny juxtaposition of those two, you know, on the one hand, taking longer but as i say you know it really i would urge people to have a look at those consultations on the bay's website you don't have to answer all the questions you can answer whatever you think is relevant but the more voices that can be heard um the better i would um i would say um i'm conscious of, of time i think nick what i would really one like one more point exactly the the well we're we talking about the same point <laughs> let's see you go for your point and we'll see if it's the, the same oh no i was i was gonna say it's <laughs> do VAT. No, well, no, no, we 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 um we talked last time around about the fun and games with uh, the UK trying to force every international trader who wants to sell online into the UK, um, and, and indeed uh, physically, but online certainly, to register for VAT and charge VAT. Um, uh, Joe Blesser Cotton Socks found a really good explanation of what's really going on. Because um, we really only touched on it uh, yeah. last time. And I think you're going to share that. Link share the link yeah. uh, which it was a makes a lot more sense than i could ever make yeah it's, it's very good it's good it breaks everything down one by one i will share the link i, I was actually going to ask if you could just touch on which I know, and I know it's a really complex issue and it may be something we had come back to the bill on consumer rights and ah, um yes. transfer ownership um right in- now the government is proposing to as it thinks tidy up the whole business of what happens when a retail business fails and we've all had the scandals about um, store vouchers and gift cards and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, equally, it's a problem because an awful lot of uh, businesses take cons- uh, consumer deposits. Yep. Um, and the government is proposing to complicate this whole situation beyond all endurance by creating a whole series of events which will in law, be deemed to transfer the ownership of an item from the vendor to the purchaser. And that's before maybe it's even been fully paid for, isn't it? Is that that kind of... Oh, early certainly before it's been fully pay, paid for. Um, there, are, Anyway, it's highly complicated. There's a quite interesting um, uh, creed occur blog by R3, the UK's um, uh, trade body for insolvency practitioners, saying, hang on a minute, this is not right. Um, and we and we told the government so, and they're ignoring us. Mm. I have, however, raised another question, which is relevant to our audience. If the government is going to make it um, easier for the customer to claim that they own an item 
when a retailer, or in fact any other business that deals it directly with consumers, um, goes bust, where does that leave the rights of unpaid suppliers under their retention, retention of title? Of title. Claims. I mean, my simplistic um, non-legal view is that surely you can't pass any better title than you actually have. Mm. So if you don't own the goods because there's a reservation of title, then it doesn't matter what the consumer law says, then presumably the consumer can't gain good title to it. But, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I don't know whether that's right. I have raised the issue with R3 and have had that acknowledged but not yet answered. So maybe I'll so we'll talk keep... to my insolvency buddies in the in the in the meanwhile before we talk next week or the week after. Yeah. And if they've got an answer, because it you know it does it does affect uh, recovery prospects for absolutely, suppliers. and it's a big I mean it's a big part, isn't it, of the of the yeah. um, risk um, profile, isn't it, of, of having those retention of title clauses. So if there's any yes. anything that might jeopardise those, I think that's a really like should be um, big flashing lights um, yeah. going on with those. So thanks for um, for that. I suppose to just to to bring everything to a conclusion, I'd like to just teeny tiny touch on um on brexit and i you know i realize this is actually a much bigger issue as we as we all know but there, again this week we're starting to see what the the problems are you know a transition period that was was meant to last well it did in fact last a year and a half um of course was meant to to allow all these teething problems with new regimes to be sorted out in fact the the real transition period we have six days i think four of which were either bank holidays or, or weekends so you know inevitably you know, we're, we're seeing quite a lot of teething problems. Scottish fishing is big among those. And there are already, um, I think there are, there are moves to try and make the paperwork and the kind of customs clearance take place in Scotland. So that then the, you know, we don't, we're not having that, that problem of lots of live um, fish going bad at, at the ports in, um, in Dover. Um, but the other interesting thing is the increase in the um, trade direct EU to Republic of Ireland trade and a new route um, from Dunkirk to Rosslare started in January to try and kind of get rid of the UK land bridge. And again, we're hearing that that is oversubscribed and buzzing and Holyhead is really you know, dead. Um, and Joe, what, what we simply don't know yet, and, it, and it, it, this is way too early to try drawing any conclusions, is to what extent, uh, you know, the, the the usual glorious ingenuity of business in finding ways round will yeah. make this one of those sort of funny little Brexit stories, transition stories that, that was high profile for a month and then went away. We don't yeah. know. And I think that's the thing that we will keep our keep our eyes on and, and see. Because you know, you're right, you know, businesses are fantastic at coming up with new new ways round um obstacles. So let's hope this is uh, this is teething problems. Anyway, Nick, thank you so much for um for that whistle stop tour of <laughs> lots of different um lots of different topics um, this week thanks everybody uh, for listening and we'll be back next week bye-bye